there are lots of things that our city of the future could do for us. And I'm fairly confident that what we need to do is not reinvent, but reimagine what these spaces are, who's going to be in them, what they're going to be used for, and do them in such a way that they take care of us, not us of them. But we also need to look broader. We need to look at what it is as a society that we want Australia to be. My mantra is really simple. We do the best with what we can today, knowing what we have and what we have, and tomorrow we'll do differently again because of it. Doesn't mean it was bad today, it just means it's the best that we know to do at the moment. Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we highlight innovation across transport, mobility, and smart cities, and meet the people that are making it happen. My name is Emily Bobbis. I'm a road intelligence startup founder, and my goal is to combat the stigma that transport is uncool, uninteresting, and uninspired. Maurice, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast to chat with me today. It's an absolute pleasure. To start off, uh, can you introduce yourself and a couple of things that you're passionate about? Well, my name's Morris Missel. I work as a business futurist or a foresight strategist. I'm passionate about a better future. I mean, really from day one on this planet, I've been besotted by trying to imagine what tomorrow might look like. I understand that we live in today and we take our cues from what we did yesterday, but I've always believed we're headed to tomorrow. If I'm headed there, I kind of want to understand what might be waiting for me and how I can be the best version of me when I get there. And that pretty much has taken me through my entire career, that very simple childlike quest. I I do like that it's uh, quite a positive perspective to, to look at things because I think often people get very caught up in all the things that are not done or that are maybe could be improved but they see it in quite a negative light. I'm a glass overflowing person. I mean, I see oceans ahead. <laughs> Look, I, under, I understand the pragmatism of today. I truly do. I've done a lot of counselling on the street. I've been down, you know, I've, I've worked in prisons. I've seen, I've seen lots of spaces and places people wouldn't want to go to. The thing that I know consistently out of all of those is unless we see a vision of tomorrow, then there's no purpose in today at all. And, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic about it, but it truly is that. And I find that with my business clients as well, you know, if we can't get around the commonality of where we're headed and what we want to achieve and why we want to get there and what the world might look like when we get there, then we're all just rowing in different directions. It just doesn't make sense. Mm, okay. We'll come back to the futurist uh, mindset aspect again later. Um, but for now, I wanted to kind of turn the conversation towards the idea of the f- built environment. So you and I had a really interesting chat where we were discussing this podcast about what the built environment might look like and how it might change. Um, so this is a double barrel question, but I might split it up because they are quite long. So the first half of the question is, how do you think the role of physical spaces and buildings will change or what they will look like into the future? So I'll address that half first. Well, first thing is we need to understand that the physical environment, of course, impacts on humans. It impacts on who we are, what we are and how we do our work. So it's really important that we take it from 
that understanding. I say that because our buildings up until about 20 years ago really didn't play into that at all. They played into showing off. They played into being very tall, having great elaborate lobbies, making people kind of feel inferior about themselves when they walked in. They gave cues that weren't necessarily humanistic. And to me, that's the first big change in the last decade or two. Their buildings have turned very humanistic. They're all about enveloping people, making them welcome into a space, giving them an opportunity to to do what they need to do within that space. You'll find that the buildings now just don't have that huge light edifice that they might have once had. The lobbies are very different. The spaces in which we work are different. So all of that to me is really important. And moving forward, as I said, one of the big, big changes is this humanistic viewpoint that our architecture is moving towards that. If you overlay that, so we now understand the environment, the built environment, the thing that we as humans create has an impact on who we are, and we're working in a space now where that supposedly is more humanistic and more caring of that person and able to guide them in the direction that that work or that space requires of them. Overlay onto that this brand new world that we've created in the last 30 years It seems like it's been here forever, but it's so, so brand new in the history of of our humanity. And that's the digital space. What we're going to talk about for the next while is really how the evolution of the digital space and the digital ability overlays onto that building and how it changes everything we can do in that space. And to me, that's the most exciting avenue of where we're headed into tomorrow's landscape with all of this. Yes, there has been a lot of discussion. I don't know much about them, but um, but the idea of like digital twins and stuff like that, which sounds super cool. Yeah, love the notion of it. So what we have now is the notion of buildings as living things. I mean, that's the next iteration from human-centric. Our buildings were really passive, meant that we came in, the walls were the walls, the doors were the doors. Of course, I mean, this thing doesn't make sense because that's what a building is. (laughs) But of late, our buildings aren't that. They've become active. They've almost become anthropomorphic. They have an ability to move, to decide, to speak, to interact with us. And I don't mean move as in physically get up and go somewhere else, but I mean as in move as in open windows and shut windows and open doors and change shades and do all those kinds of things. What this has been brought about is really the notion of our digital world, which many of us now use in our homes to retrofit. We're buying devices like a Siri or a Google or something else that we can speak to and that can turn on and off things. So this building that was once passive that had no part in our lives apart from being shelter and home now has an active place. It actually talks to us. It tells us about the outside environment. It does all kinds of things. That's its role in life now. Now, to the notion of a digital twin, which is an exact replica of a physical being, this is where the digital twin's coming from, that because our lives have, across all areas, have moved into this digitization space. Everything about our lives is now zeros and ones. There's an exact copy of what we do in a zero and one format in our mobile phone, in our cars, in our computers or whatever else we're doing. What we're able to do now or what we're just beginning to do now is what's euphemistically called a digital twin, that I can make an exact replica of the environment that I'm living in, that I'm traveling in, even of me as a human being. And I can pre-trial an attempt of what the world might look like in that digital space. So one of the spaces that have been 
most prevalent in this and been around for about 20 years or so is in tall buildings. And it's been around the notion of air conditioning plant equipment, lifts, and those sorts of equipments. What's happened in many of those spaces, most of them in the last 10 years, is yes, of course, they put the physical lift in. Yes, of course, they put the physical air conditioning in. And that does what it needs to do. But there's also a digital echo to that, that off-site people can be constantly checking on those pieces of equipment. The equipment itself is always checking on itself, looking for false positives and sending messages out when it needs repairs or when it needs something. And what we can do is work through that digital twin to make changes, to make repairs, to upgrade, to do all kinds of things that will then affect the physical building. And, And this digital stuff, this digital twin, is fascinating. It plays itself out into humanity as well with our medicines. We're going to hear a lot more about it. And for our listeners, we all have a digital twin already. It lives inside of our mobile phone. (laughs) It's just not as sophisticated as it will be in five or 10 years, but it knows pretty much everything about you. If a human came to you with all the information that your mobile phone knows about you, we would be scared. Mm. I I do like the point that you mentioned about, um, or it made me think of this idea of buildings and the way that spaces are now built no longer have a clear delineation. So it used to be you'd have um, like an obvious one, say your physical building, and then you'd have a green space, but now they're trying to integrate all of those different components together. And I feel like that's where you've got green space comes in, the human centric design comes in, but then also those digital twins kind of come in as that nice, like little almost cherry on on top of all those different layers involved. They all do. If I can take you into this mad mind of how I see this whole physical space working itself out with what we've got and with what we've had and what I think we're going to have into the future, that what we're about to do is fairly well known. In other words, it's in our diaries, somebody knows something about where we're traveling to or what we want to achieve. What happens is that that starts an orchestration of activities. So I'm in a physical space now, I need to get to my next meeting. I can have from my devices, independent of me, this whole digital twin that we spoke about called other things, but digital twin can order me up some kind of a transport to get me from where I need to be to where, from where I am, sorry, to where I need to be. It can monitor that progress for me, tell me about the weather, change the way we get there, do all kinds of things. It can inform the building I'm about to arrive and the building can either make a car space available to me or it can arrange a spot that I can be dropped off at and then give me directions for where I need to go. It can welcome me into the building. It can physically open the door. It can turn on the lights. It can change the air conditioning and heating, doing whatever it needs to do, informing the people I'm about to meet about me entering how far away I am. It calls a lift if there's a lift in the building and takes me to the exact floor and also shows me directions of how to get to the exact front door of that office or wherever else I'm headed. It's changed the air conditioning, the heating. It's changed all of the conditions to be suitable because of whatever meeting it thinks we're going to have. In other words, if it's a brainstorming, it might be quite light and bright. If it's a serious meeting, it might have the lights down more subdued, might have music in the background. It's doing that all independent. To me, what we're moving into is this dynamic world where space is no longer fixed, where it's possible for a space to change its dynamics. Now, that doesn't mean it can walk down the street and become something else. It doesn't mean it can expand, but it does mean it can open windows and doors. It does mean it can move walls. It does mean that it become green space by opening a door and letting us out into that green space or closing that off. All of these things 
a part of a landscape of where I think buildings move in and cities move into being very, very active participants in our lives. I could totally just like go on a whole rabbit hole based on everything that you just said then. Uh, But I'll ask you the second half of the question because I did promise you that it was a double barrel. What steps do you think we could take now to encourage uh, this dynamism in design, if that's the right word, or like better learn from the history of how we've built cities to kind of make them better as we continue into the future? We'll make them more relevant to what we need in the future because we built our cities for the Industrial Revolution model Mm. and they suited that purpose. But as you've said rightly, they don't anymore. What we need to do as good architects, as as good designers, as good cityscapers is really to go back to the user experience, is to understand what those environments might be used for. We also need to understand that we're moving into this dynamic space and that we've got to create a legacy building or a legacy city or extended space that will allow itself to expand and grow and contract and do the things we need it to do. We need to also understand that we are looking at a broad set of futures, not a narrow set of futures. So really, what are all the sorts of people that can go into those spaces and what might they need? And for me and my clients, how do we make money? How, and how, how do we make a commercial reality out of these spaces? And there are things that we will be able to do in these spaces, business models and ways to earn income that really haven't been canvassed very well at all. I worked with a Canadian consulting group with one of the largest commercial uh, rental companies in the world. And I'd said to them facetiously, and this was only a few months ago, that I believe by the end of this decade that they will no longer be uh, accepting rental money from uh, tenants because that won't be necessary. The income from our buildings will in fact come from a myriad of other places and that has a lot to do with, this is down the rabbit hole again, with blockchain <laughs> and all those other things that we're about to see on our horizon, all of those possibilities around that digital space and physical space. So there's no short answer to your short question. It's a long answer because there's lots we'll be able to do, much of it we've never thought possible before, and we're going to have to invent all of it. So again, it's really hard not to go down a rabbit hole because when you start talking about um like the future of where income could come from. There's this whole conversation about Web3 and I think people know about crypto in, in the in the um, that space of Web3, but the Web3 aspect is also so much bigger and it's just, it's very exciting, I think, is is, is the, uh, the impression that I think most people should get across from this whole conversation. The possibilities are exciting. I mean, crypto is just a way that we exchange something of value with each other. So it's a unit of doing that and it's important, but it really does, as you said, more importantly about Web 3.0, where we become creators and we have active participation. And again, to me, because commercial reality is always where my clients need to be, there are such opportunities ahead. We're literally in the Wild West days and these new forms of living, these new forms of building, these new forms of city and extended spaces are really going to offer a complete new landscape to be able to do those on. Hmm. Gosh, going back to your comment about user experience and and the broader perspective, um, inclusivity is obviously super important when it comes to design. Uh, I had a conversation, I think, late last year with Sue Boyce, who's the CEO of AbilityWorks Australia, and she just was having such a great conversation about things I'd never even considered in the way that we design cities. So how do you think that we could have more inclusivity 
in the way that we design our cities and our spaces? What a wonderful question. So I actually, as a sideline, consult in to a Griffith University where I head up a group of 300 researchers who are looking at this exact question. Mm. We're looking at disability research. And one of, the, one of the things that I posit to them all the time is this question. Now, the answer to me, again, comes in the flexibility that this world, this existing world going backwards was not built for accessibility. We may have had platitudes towards it and said it was possible, but it was rarely, in fact, if ever, designed and devised by people with lived experience. The first thing we need to do is understand that humans come in all shapes, forms and senses of ability, and we need to include all of those when we build our spaces. And I truly mean all of them, not just lip service, all. The other thing we need to realise is that our fixed spaces now, with this dynamic ability that I've just outlined earlier, has the capacity, if we allow it to, to actually make accessibility a given. So one of the things that I'm one of the things that I'm playing with at the moment is a house. So let's get back down to the human house side of it, which again becomes part of a building, part of a city. Why doesn't a house recognise the person that's about to go into it? Whether they're wheelchair bound, whether they're able to move their limbs, whether they're able, you know, whatever it is, why doesn't it know their capability? And again, all of that's known because in a digital landscape, our devices carry that information with us and with our permission are able to share that. Why doesn't the environment then change itself dynamically just to suit that person for that circumstance and then be able to change itself again? One of the challenges I put to one of my building clients was, why are the kitchen benches all one height? Hmm. Why doesn't the kitchen bench recognise the person that's about to use it, regardless of ability or disability, and change itself, raise and lower itself? The engineering of that's quite simple. It's just never been done because humans don't think that way. We think that we have to have one fixed space. We don't. Why doesn't the bathroom change itself? Why don't the doors widen and narrow. And again, that can be done. So to your point, I think what we need to do is to have that mindset from day one, look at it from the user or the lived experience perspective, ask ourselves what would be the optimum that we can achieve, then look at who else might be that in that environment and how can we achieve that best outcome for everybody using the fixed abilities we have, the understanding of building, engineering, construction that we have in this new landscape that we don't quite yet understand of a digital ability to be able to shift and shape change as it needs to do. I think that leads quite nicely to the next question. I'd initially used the word trends in this question, but I feel like the idea of trends uh, kind of is transient or probably not the right word because it would be what are the things that you think people should be looking out for in urban designs or the or the things that people aren't talking about enough that they should be discussing so we need to look at urban design and need to understand the purpose of mm. a city and i don't think the purpose of a city anymore is to be a cbd is to be a central business district we're moved away from that and if covid's given us anything it's the hurry along to change what we were going to change over 10 years in the space of two years. And that's where and how and why we work. What we're moving to is a central leisure district rather than a CBD. And that's true of most of our major urban cities. So the purpose of a city needs to be looked at and let's not build for history, let's build for future. Now that requires a very different landscape, a very different built environment, and we can do that. We need to acknowledge it and move forward on it. So to me, that's one of the first big things. We also need to 
hopefully understand that these are not just things that live inside of a major city. They live inside of rural spaces as well. So we need to understand how these spaces in rural environments are different from the ones in a, in a city or an urban environment and what we can do to make those things flourish as well. Because what we seem to be moving to now is a dispersed humanity where we'll live in more than just our fixed cities as we've done for the last 100 years, but spread ourselves out further. The other thing that I'm absolutely sure that if we use our ability and if we allow all of this new dynamic infrastructure, this digital landscape to assist us with, is really to overcome wastage. Mm. That what we can do understanding the city, a city that speaks to us, that tells us how many people are on the footpath, how many people are going up and down lifts, what's about to happen, what the weather's like and what that condition might mean to the river and how overflowing our rubbish tins are and all kinds of things. It knows all of that and it's constantly speaking to us. Imagine how we could orchestrate that building, sorry, that city to be more efficient for the lights and the traffic, as we're just starting to do now, to be more cognizant of the traffic itself and to change dynamically, for rubbish to be picked up as it's required rather than just on routine, for repairs to be done as and when's required. And let's not even talk about self-repairing concrete and other things that we don't yet have that might be able to play into this space. There are lots of things that our city of the future could do for us. And I'm fairly confident that what we need to do is not reinvent but reimagine what these spaces are, who's going to be in them, what they're going to be used for, and do them in such a way that they take care of us, not us of them. I do like that quote about reinvent versus reimagine, uh, particularly with the government doing this big push towards return to the CBD and there's been a lot of pressure I think on people to not work from home as much so that they can get everyone back and using the infrastructure in the city so it's quite interesting that you brought up this idea of again that that idea of a dynamic space. Look to me it's absolute nonsense as we speak yes there is this push to go back in we're living at the moment in what I refer to as a pendulum space that is we've come out of two years of horror of horror we're absolutely reacting to it as humans always do and we seem to be or we think we're making life choices. We're not. We're making short-term choices. So for a number of people, they've chosen or they believe they've chosen not to go back to a central workspace. A number of people have chosen not to go back to nine to five Monday to Friday. I actually champion all those because I never believed that they were purposeful or useful constructs anyway. Mm. So I'm, I'm all in favour of us choosing <laughs> where and when is possible for us to work. But the reality is that we don't know what those spaces will look like moving forward. I still believe 70% of people will return to old habits within the next year or so. So we will see more people pushing back into the city. My question is, why are we forcing them back there? Why aren't we allowing this newness to be part of a landscape moving forward, but truly allow it, not just give platitudes to it? We don't yet have the proper structures. Businesses still seem to be playing with I know it's early days and it's too early to say it's settled yet. But my conversations still come back to often hearing the word back. We're going back to this or back to that. Why are we going back? Why aren't we going forward? Why aren't we taking this horrible lived experience we had and making some purpose out of it? So 
to me, when I'm looking or I'm advocating for a building of the future, for a client, real estate needs for the future or whatever it is, I'm advocating for what it truly might be, not the pendulum of what it is now and certainly not of what it is, of what it was before. And that's really important. We have to allow the dust to, the dust to settle before we can make really big lifelong decisions. Mm, yeah. I'm also keen to hear your thoughts on the budget because there was heaps of spending in very traditional infrastructure. So like lots of road, lots of rail, particularly in regional areas. Do you think there's any missed opportunities there, particularly in smart city spaces? Yeah. Why are we doing it? (laughs) I get it. I've had this argument for 20, 30 years. It's the same (laughs) argument I have with building freeways. One of my clients is one of the largest road builders in Australasia, love them to death. And yes, the pragmatism, what they require to do is necessary. We need them. But even they in our workshops admit that we're moving into a different landscape of transport. These transport hubs, these railways, these roads, all of these things were built for a time when each Australian had a motor vehicle where everything traveled on the road and they were built for a nine to five model of work. If we change that, as we just said we might be, if we look at the future of transport, which is likely to include include some autonomy. I don't buy into the myth that we're all going into these little hubs that you know, we'll be able to watch cartoons on and it'll take us somewhere miraculously. <laughs> I think that's still 20, 30 years away, but we're moving into some form of autonomy where all or many people are already using apps that change the direction of travel because it says the traffic's too, you know, too uh, dense on one side, take this road instead. So we're shifting, we're shifting and changing that already. So I'm not quite sure why we're building roads to what we once needed them to be and not towards what we will need them to be. Rail, I think, is an incredibly wonderful thing and I think we need to be pushing more to that. I don't understand in Australia why we don't have fast rail. It's never made sense to me. We should be able to cover the East Coast in about four hours. If we were on some other continent, we would have done it a long time ago. And that would change the basic nature and fabric of Australia and who and where and what we live. And our conversation of smart cities and smart spaces would be very different because we would travel up and down this coast and live wherever we wanted to and then be able to migrate quite happily and quickly to somewhere else. So I think they're missed opportunities. Again, looking back, not looking forward. But we also need to look broader. We need to look at what it is as a society that we want Australia to be? What is it we're trying to create? And I'm not really getting a true reading of that. And that's not about today. I've not got a true reading of that for a very long period of time. We need to work towards that, but it's hard to work towards it if we don't know what direction that is or what it is we're even looking for. Oh, very interesting stuff. Um, This question is kind of like the ultimate question, I think, for you, which would be how do we or how can we foster a futurist mindset? Uh, and then as second half of that question, how would you then apply that to, say, urban design or smart cities? So for me, the for me, it really goes back to the first comment I think I made with you, and that is to be inquisitive. It's not to accept the status quo. Our society, the way we've been brought up the last 150 years or so, especially Industrial Revolution, I can't blame a lot on that rug because it's really easy. It's not as simplistic as that, but it's a nice easy rug to sweep it under. Has kind of taught us to accept status quo and to move in the direction everyone else is moving in. So whether it's our urban cities, whether it's for ourselves or our businesses, we really need to begin 
to inquire why the things we believe to be true are and in fact whether they are to reimagine what they can be and to do that audaciously i mean really to go out on a limb and to think about how things might be different one of the tricks I always use is that I refer to us humans as being constant, regardless of when we were put on this planet. I believe our basic needs, our basic wants, have remained forever and will remain forever. What we do is trick up the way that we satisfy them. So our house has changed, the food changes, our transport changes, but we're still trying to make sure that we're sheltered. We're still trying to make sure that we move. We're still trying to make sure that we have somewhere that we call home and a family around us. So think back to what the core activity is. What is What human trait are we trying to resolve? And then think forward as to how we might best be able to do that given what we have now. Also understand that everything is fluid. We're not trying to create the greatest, most possible way to do this, which is something we had to do in the past. My mantra is really simple. We do the best with what we can today, knowing what we have and what we have, and tomorrow we'll do differently again because of it. doesn't mean it was bad today. It just means it's the best that we know to do at the moment. Most things which seem unusual are the things that make a strategist, somebody who is valuable in an organisation. Also, think broadly. You've got to really be able to look at what I refer to as a soft focus. Look broadly across all things. I mean, like culture and food and transport and gender and all sorts of things because it's impossible to know where your cue is until you've found it. What is that thing that triggers where that thing is? And we are all interrelated in our thinking. So the broader you can think, the more the more understanding you have of the interconnection, the interplay also helps you to understand what tomorrow's landscapes might look like. And most importantly, future always has to end in an S. It's futures, not future. Because future means that there is only one, it's inevitable, and that's where we're headed. And once we get there, the journey stops. And we all know that's not true. So it's a constant iteration. And the love of that constant iteration is the other thing that we need to foster. Mm, I love the mantra, by the way. I might steal that. <laughs> I also like that you've kind of phrased it um, at the beginning of that as something as simple as asking questions about the status quo. Because I think that's a really easy, easy place to start for a lot of people to just question why it is that we do things a particular way. And is it just because of a habit? Absolutely. Look, if you want a simple way to do it, take a magazine, take any magazine, take any newspaper, I mean, look at something in a blog, whatever. But what I want you to do is take a couple of pictures that are fairly ordinary, a house, a dog, a coat, I mean, whatever it is, something that catches your attention. Throw it into a conversation, into a room, into a workshop and ask people what these things mean to them and then ask them how they might change them into the future. And let's start getting that imagination muscle going, thinking about the most ridiculous things about what that coat could become or what that other image or whatever else you've torn out of that magazine or wherever else you've got it from. Really go wild on the thinking of it. Don't get caught up on the pragmatism. That will come. That's important. But that's not where you're at at this moment. So really exercising that muscle and giving permission to yourself and those around you to think nonsense for a while is really important. It's not something we give to ourselves, to our children, to our colleagues, to our work environments. We all have to be so proper and be able to justify everything. But you know what? Maybe 10, 15% of our day or our time 
just doesn't have to be justified. It just needs to be imagining what else might be. Yeah, that is a very nice way of thinking about it. <laughs> I know we've covered quite a lot um, and I think a lot of it is very important, but I think out of everything we've chatted today, what do you think you would want the key takeaway to be for anyone listening? So I know that today we've talked a lot about physical space and how it might be able to morph itself into tomorrow's landscape. But if I can go back perhaps just to that humanistic thing that I've been rabbiting on about for the last while, to me the most important things are to be inquisitive, to be human-centric always, and to imagine audaciously about what a future might look like. And they're the three things, honestly, that have stood me in good stead for so long. How can people get in touch with you or find out more information? So the site is morrisfuturist.com and otherwise all the socials are the same, Morris Futurist. Perfect. Easy. <laughs> awesome. Well, Morris, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. It was a super interesting conversation. My absolute pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about any of the guests that we have on the podcast, more about Bite Size, or more about Compass IoT, the company that produces this podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time.